thanks very much for coming along. Um, this is week three of the uh, Centre for Sociolegal Studies and Oxford Transition of Justice Research um, seminar series. It's a real honour um, to have with us this evening um, Professor Ralph Henham, who many of you I know um, will know Ralph already, um, particularly from his time here in Oxford at the, the Centre for Criminology, um, and also his, his uh, memorable appearance at the OTJR conference last June. So, Ralph, it's, it's very good to, to have you back with us. Um, Ralph, of course, is Professor of Criminal Justice at Nottingham Law School at Nottingham Trent University, um, where he's the head of the research cluster on criminal justice. Uh, he also runs the, the LLM in international criminal law. Um, and this evening, uh, he's going to be speaking to us on the subject of punishment in transition, rethinking the role of punishment and sentencing for transitional justice. Thanks very much, Ralph. Yeah, thank you, Phil. Thank you very much uh, to everyone for coming, and thank you for in inviting me along this evening. Um, I've actually got a prepared paper, so I'm going to, to uh, give it to you, and um, hopefully stimulate a, a, a bit of a discussion at the, at the end. Um, what I want to do really is, first of all, just say the, uh, the general focus of, of what I'm going to say is, is theoretical rather than empirical. Um, mainly because transitional justice for me is, is um, something which I'm beginning to engage with but only at the theoretical level. Um, my main interest is in punishment and sentencing. And I've spent the last probably about 10 years or so looking at the way in which um, international uh, trials in particular might be reconceptualized in some way to become a bit more restorative in influence. Um, but the first point I want to make is that I draw a distinction in what I'm saying between punishment and sentencing. Punishment, I'm using it really in the sense of referring to uh, values and justifications uh, and norms rather than with sentencing, what I'm talking about really is the, the everyday practice, the practical reality of decision-making. Um, <clears throat> this particular distinction, I think, is, is crucial to what I've got to, to say, in the sense that what I'm interested in is trying to develop a greater understanding of the legitimacy of punishment and sentencing. Um, and I think that this is, is very important for the, the development of transitional justice policy in the future, if there is to be such a thing. Um, now, as a general proposition, um, it may be argued that the aims of punishment and their realisation through sentencing are becoming increasingly divorced from what individuals and communities perceive as justice for certain types of behaviour and offender. As I said, it's a general proposition, it's debatable, but this is something that I'm just floating as an idea, if you like, but it's an important one. Since penal legitimacy is directly related to effective governance in criminal justice, loss of faith or loss, lack of moral empathy by citizens with the ideologies, processes and outcomes of punishment compromises the ability of criminal trials to function effectively maintaining the rule of law. 
Therefore, expanding our understanding of the relationship between the ideology of punishment and sentencing practice in criminal trials has major implications for criminal justice policy at both the national and international levels. Now, this is something I believe. I mean, it's obviously contentious, but this is my particular view. I feel also that sentencing is crucial because it's the point in the trial where the aims of punishment are given concrete and public expression in specific cases. Therefore, the process of sentence decision-making provides a crucial link between the ideology which informs punishment and the context against which the legitimacy of punishment is judged. However, I feel also that social theory in the criminal justice field is generally weak in accounting for the normative aspects of sentencing. Or more specifically, how expectations about punishment relate to sentencing decisions and their consequential impact. Um, in terms of the theoretical focus, the notion of legitimacy, I feel, is best seen as concerned with describing and explaining the relationship between the morality of punishment and the practice of sentencing. I'm interested in doing this from a sociolog sociological perspective. It's a complex com conceptual exercise which involves deconstructing the relationship between penal ideology and the normative framework of punishment and sentencing. So, I speculate that for any particular context, this might mean doing a number of things. First of all, looking at the aims of punishment, how they are, how they are represented as penal ideology and why they take their present form. Secondly, how penal ideology finds expression in the normative framework for sentencing, both substantive and procedural. Thirdly, the extent to which sentencing facilitates the transformation of penal ideology into concrete outcomes. This involves considering the extent to which the morality which underpins penal ideology influences the sentence decision-making process. Fourthly, the degree to which sentences are perceived as legitimate by the trial's relevant audience. And finally, the relationship between the perceived ideology, uh, sorry, the perceived legitimacy of punishment and the attitudes and behaviour of the trial's relevant audience. Now, I suggest that linking all these ideas theoretically requires the role of punishment and sentencing to be conceptualised in broader terms than is currently possible. The fact that theory can help us to explain how certain structures and processes are functionally implicated in producing particular sentencing outcomes doesn't mean that we are able to provide valid contextual accounts of why this should be the case or of its significance in terms of the legitimacy of trial process. Whilst we can speculate theoretically about the symbolic effects of punishment or relationships between power and trial ideology, Sociological interpretations of criminal justice and sentencing in particular, as, as I've suggested, are weak, are, as I've suggested, are weak in describing the reality and significance of the link between 
the morality, between morality and punishment from a sociological perspective. That being so, there seems to be some normative lacuna in this kind of theorising and the need for social theory to better conceptualise the link between values and norms on the one hand and structure and action on the other. So this requires some accommodation in our existing ideas about the relationship between law and morality, especially the extent to which legal norms and processes facilitate the transformation of penal ideologies into guides for action <coughs> through sentencing. Uh, as I suggested, these are central concerns, I think, in developing strategies for transitional justice, which I hope to explain as, as I go on. Um, before I get to that stage, those are just a few of the theoretical problems which I see that need to be addressed. Um, but before getting to that stage, there are particular obstacles, um, which I talked about last time. I just want to summarise some of them um, because I think they're important. The focus of what I'm going to say, though, is strictly limited to the ad hoc tribunals and the ICC. I haven't drawn on other information from the internationalised tribunals um, in these comments. Um, so what I'm trying to do is to draw out some of the problems that exist for shaping the way we think about the role of punishment and sentencing in developing strategies for transitional justice. Um, international sentencing in particular and the values and norms that underpin it um, face similar problems uh, as those that I've already identified. Um, there are fundamental questions to be answered about how we look at the rationales for punishment which purport to underpin international criminal justice and thereby are said to validate the outcomes of international sentencing. The issue here is whether or not these rationales need to be clarified in any way. Perhaps they do, perhaps they do not. If we decide that they do, how would we go about doing so? And how would that be significant in terms of transitional justice strategies? There's a second problem, which I haven't really got much time to talk about, um, today, but it's one which I think is really a critical one, um, so be willing to ask any questions on it, but it's, it's the question of how we actually interpret what's going on in terms of theory, the theory and methods that we use. Uh, given that I'm coming at this from a particular perspective, obviously uh, a lawyer with a criminological background, and others of you will be coming from a different perspective. But from my perspective, there are fundamental problems, particularly about comparative analysis and how we go about it. As I say, it's not something that I can sort of fit into this talk today, but I think that the problem is really that there's a lot of questions that we can't answer about the way the outcomes of trials are perceived by the relevant audiences using the sort of conventional sort of criminal justice models and uh, theories that we used in the past. I think we really need to, to think hard about that. Anyway, that's, I'll just park that one 
to one side for now because uh, the third point is uh, the one that I'm going to focus on, as I said at the beginning, the legitimacy question. Um, the implications of this, that if, if we think that there is a problem in terms of legitimacy, then it's got very important repercussions for the future development of international trial justice. And then we get on to perhaps thinking about the way in which you might want to transform international trials, which is something that I've been writing about uh, with a, a colleague of mine, uh, Mark Finlay, for, for a, a past few years. So we've got some ideas about how that might, might be developed, which I'll say something about at the end. Um, having got through all, all that, when thinking about how you might transform international trial justice if you think that's a desirable thing to do. The question which I've begun to think about very hard more recently is how does this fit into transitional justice? So it's the next stage, a very small piece in that sort of jigsaw. Now, as I said, I just want to recap some of the problems and issues because I think uh, it helps to put what I'm thinking about in a bit more context. So by, by way of, of, of recapping, if you like, the idea of, of justifying punishment, the thing that brought me to look at international trials in the first place that made me interested in it was the fact that um, when looking at some of the earlier judgments of the ICTY in particular, uh, I found that the, the way in which these judgments were rationalised was rather difficult to understand. And um, a very good example was the, the case of Erdemovich. Um, when it was stated quite clearly in that case that distinctions could clearly be drawn between general prevention, reprobation, retribution, and collective re re reconciliation. And it said in the case, in the judgment, that these purposes would provide guidance in determining the appropriate punishment for a crime against humanity. And I thought, well, how? And it's, it's no, in no way clear how that could happen from what was explained in that particular judgment. And of course, when you look at other judgments, and as other commentators have done as well, you can see quite clearly that there is a gap. There's a problem in trying to translate these abstract aims, let alone describing what they actually mean in this context, but relating them to something which has got some sort of meaning in the case involved that, that's being looked at. Um, so, I suppose there are, there are two ways of looking at this, maybe more, I'm not sure, but, but the two that I identified was that perhaps we have a, a, a new form of jurisprudence here, which uh, essentially is going to develop um, and we have a problem because we haven't got a principled framework for uh, articulating the principles of, of distributive justice. We haven't got anything to help the judiciary, the international judiciary, to put these aims such as they are into, into practice given the huge amount of judicial discretion that, that they've actually got. But this needs to be um, translated into something more effective. Um, but 
I suppose I took the view that there was something a bit more fundamentally awry because these aims themselves were very difficult to pin down uh, as meaningful in very abstract terms in the first place, i.e. The, the purposes as described uh, without articulating them any further. So, if in other words, I, I would argue that there was something more fundamental, a lack of connection between the ideology which informs the punishment and its perceived legitimacy and the way it's, it finds expression in terms of sentencing outcomes. Now, this, this kind of problem is more widespread, the idea of a lack of connection between the ideology of punishment and the practice of it. It's something which um, has been written about, um, particularly by um, commentators like uh, uh, David Garland. Um, so the problem is exacerbated in complex pluralistic societies where the ideological and physical resources of criminal justice are monopolised by paralytes as part of the apparatus of control, as Garland says. So he suggests that shifts in governments, sorry, governance over time makes the task of understanding different punishments, punishment rationales and studying the relationship between values, norms and the legitimacy of trial justice in different contexts, extremely complex. Duff and Garland have also argued that the practice of sentencing distorts penal ideology and obscures its moral foundations. Not only is there the difficulty of identifying the ideology of itself, but the problem of describing the social reality of sentencing is exacerbated because the process both interprets the ideology and contextualises it through the decision-making process. So when punishment is imposed through sentencing, the moral ideology which informs sentencing law is given substance. It doesn't mean to say that sentencing distorts the moral values completely, but they, they find concrete expression through sentencing. So I suppose to that extent you could argue that sentencing is in some way morally transformative. Um, now others have argued, such as um, uh, James Cocaine for example, that, that the complexity is further magnified where you have um, dominant or hegemonic ideologies which obfuscate conventional understandings of criminality and punishment within state or regional contexts. So in other words, where you have drawing an analogy from that, in the post-conflict situations where you have uh, differences of opinion about what constitutes a crime, what doesn't constitute a crime, and what punishment is appropriate. Um, these effects, these obfuscations, if you like, are projected onto existing paradigms of criminal justice. Now, the classic example, the contemporary example, is that of risk and security. So, predominant, these are predominant concerns of postmodern penal ideology. But these have been described as being transformed by the de deliberate merging of the political 
the imperatives of the war on terror with those of conventional criminal justice concerns. Therefore, the hegemony of Western political ideology may justify significant incursions into the civil liberties of citizens in area, areas of criminal justice which seem to some to have little, if anything, to do with the perceived threat to security of global terrorism. In this way, political hegemony may categorize those exposed to diminished forms of due process in the name of criminal justice, and aim to stigmatize and exclude those for, the, for whom it perceives uh, it a threat. So, this sort of blurring of the dimensions of risk and security and its appropriation by political elites is affected through their ability to continually redefine those individuals and contexts that require precautionary intervention. Um, now, these sorts of complexities um, have only just begun to be written about in the context of international criminal justice. So I just want to look a bit more about what's been done in this area in relation to, therefore, the relationship between social control and the construction of truth. Because trial evidence and, and what is accepted as fact in the trial is crucially affected by the way in which penal justice operates as a form of social control. Um, now, alternative structures and processes such as truth and reconciliation in its various guises, these provide alternative and perhaps more relative interpretations of truth and justice. Um, because they're drawn from and rooted in context, they claim to be nearer to historical truth, as Cohen said in 1995. However, whether truth and reconciliation provides a more relevant form of truth is a matter of conjecture. For example, it's arguable whether they have a more enduring impact on victims because the process contributes more directly to the deconstruction of the myths that surround notions of collective responsibility. Alternatively, it might be argued that international criminal trials provide a symbolic and historically definitive version of truth with legal consequences which assists victims in achieving closure and a refocusing of effort on the reconstruction of broken communities. So these, these are debatable issues. But they are relevant when thinking about how the truth of international criminal justice is constructed. Now one commentator whose work um, is interesting in this area, who's been writing recently, is uh, Uwe I can't pronounce his name properly, so forgive me, Ewald, E-W-A-L-D, Uwe Ewald. Um, and he argues that victim identity is constructed through international criminal justice through social technologies that determine the relationship between hegemonic groups and those who are excluded from rights of access and justice. He suggests that such identities of victimization are, as he says, inevitably linked to interest-based political and global control strategies, and that international criminal justice is crucially implicated in constructing false accounts of victimization 
as a consequence. The processing of false victim identities is enabled through the normative framework of international trial justice. An example of this is the focus in international trials on the construction of individual perpetrators and the failure of international criminal law to reflect the collective nature of victimisation through the accountability it provides. He also argues that the distortion of value relationships resulting from the large-scale victimisation of international criminal law is validated through the value-related dimension of sentencing. So a similar argument to which I've been making, since this justifies the ideology of international criminal justice. The consistency of this false labelling amounts to social victimisation because it systematically approves the selective appropriation of false victim status and promotes distorted deviant identities. In a more recent paper, uh, which he wrote in 2008, he suggested that um, the, what he calls plausible rationality underpinning international trial justice, I'm not quite sure what he means by <coughs> plausible rationality, but he says that it produces a form of judicial truth which bears little resemblance to the material truth of commonly shared values. The ideology that informs the rationality comes from the hegemony of the socio-political context of international criminal justice, which comprises an international political process of global structuring and organisation. Consequently, the possibility of developing rights or standards aimed at achieving greater material truth is compromised by the partisan westernised definitions of risk perception and threat which inform the, ide the ideologies and normative frameworks of international trial justice. So, he refers to the idea of regimes of truth being reproduced through the, the generation of evidence that goes to sustain hegemonic ideology. So it's all fairly grand theoretical thinking. But there is perhaps some truth in it. After all, we have to discuss these issues later on. But I think that there probably is a grain of truth in what is being said there. Um, now, on the other, uh, on the other side, um, of course, all trial evidence is to do with manipulating memory. Uh, it can be sort of fairly clear about the way in which adversarial trials work. We're controlling, manipulating. Uh, trial advocates are there in order to do to do their best to achieve the desired result. There are others, and I think this, this probably <coughs> fits in more with the views of, of uh, Max Weber, who would perhaps say that you've also got to look at the way in which the system itself operates. This might even be more important than the issues of social control that I've been talking about. Um, you've got to look at bureaucratic and administrative goals as much as you do on the ideology that informs the normative framework. The need to identify system and subsystem goals of the trial 
are just as important as the need to appreciate the holistic significance of the trial process. It's very important to try and think about the points of tension and synthesis within the criminal process as a holistic thing. Um, I'm just talking about sentencing, but when I'm talking about sentencing, I'm, I would definitely add that as a cautionary uh, point, an important one. Um, so, moving on from that, um, I'm not sure how long... Yeah, 15, I, 15, 20 minutes. Yep. Right, okay. I'll uh, abbreviate quite a lot of work. Um, what I wanted to do next was just say, well, okay, if we're going to change perspective, what sort of things might we look at? Again, summarising. Changing perspective, against, uh, I would um, refer again to the ideas of uh, David Garland in this in particular, the idea of punishment of communi as communication. And also we might discuss here the ideas of um, Anthony Duff, because they're, they're, they're also coming at it from a different perspective. Why communication? Because commu the communicative function of punishment is the most important because we're talking about meanings being conveyed and the possible impact on this on the values and beliefs of the relevant audience that we're trying to, to address. So this is to do with Garland's point about the signifying nature of, of penality. It communicates meaning. It suggests that perhaps that international punishment should be reflective of generally understood cultural meanings about crime and punishment. The boundaries of morally acceptable behaviour. In other words, that kind of thinking invites us to engage with different contexts. Try and understand what we're talking about when we say that punishment must be legitimate. Um, the idea of communicating a moral message. If you like. Now, a good example of how that hasn't worked in the past, which I'm not going to spend very long on, on talking about, but it's, it is a good example on how that can be compromised, is the idea or the use of plea bargaining, plea agreements in, in criminal trials. Um, <clears throat> Now, I'm, not, I'm certainly not totally against plea bargaining, but again, it depends on how and where it is it's used. Uh, the way it's been used in, uh, in the ICTY has come under considerable criticism. Um, they've been justified on the basis they can make a considerable contribution to truth-telling and thereby aid the peace and reconciliation process. And cases like the, the Plavich case in particular, have been quoted as, as good examples of that. Um, however, they've also been heavily criticised for being a, uh, a simple administrative expedient, speeding up the trial process. The dissenting judgment of um, Wolfgang Schomburg in the Duronovich case is particularly significant, I think, in summing up the argument, where he talked about... <coughs> The capacity for negotiated pleas to distort the truth. Um, negotiated justice is selective in terms of the truth that offenders are willing to reveal. 
plea agreements produce sanitised, censored versions of the truth, they tend to obfuscate the real extent of individual responsibility for international crimes. Uh, they may also alienate communities and victims who, depending on the, their ability to actually participate in, in decision-making in relation to that. Um, other things that one might look at, questions of how individuals perceive trial justice and how individuals th throughout the, the world, if you like, humanity at large might perceive international crime justice, um, criminal justice. Um, and in this respect, it might be useful to think about some of the ideas of uh, Emile Durkheim and questions relating to the ideas of moral individualism. The idea that, which informs human rights, if you like, that we're all connected together, we have a shared moral culture um, that transcends all national boundaries. The question though, the problem is, how are we going to reflect this shared moral culture in an international regulatory framework? How are we going to reflect these shared beliefs? What about community perceptions of trial justice? This seems to be the most important thing that needs to be engaged with in terms of transitional justice. Appreciating the role of community in shaping the values attached to punishment. Um, looking at things like indigenous concepts of blame and responsibility. The mistaken labelling of responsibilities. Uh, of responses, rather. Um, what we need in order to maintain community cohesion. Um, in particular, appreciating cultural concepts, um, which uh, I'm sure many of you know a lot more about than I do, but for example, the, the African concept of Ubuntu, um, which provides a spiritual foundation for African societies. Um, in other words, appreciating indigenous foundations for social morality seems to me that this is a necessary precursor to reconstructing the rule of law and envisioning the role of international trial justice within such a project. In other words, the notion of community is very significant in thinking about how international punishment and sentencing might better engage with transitional justice strategies. The idea of transforming international trial justice implies that it has got something to do with making it more inclusive and participative, especially for victims and communities. So we have to even think about what we mean by community, the responsibilities and expectations of those involved. How are their perceptions constructed? It's particularly important to investigate subjective factors such as feelings and emotions and how they relate to perceived legitimacy of international trial justice. Um, so there may be no indication of where the line is drawn between those resolutions which are governed by so-called law and those which regulate the infringement of social norms. Which ones have priority and why? 
then there's the question of looking at minority groups within um, transitional justice situations. Um, issues which, again, I'm sure some of you have done research in these areas of looking at indigenous communities. Um, the way in which particular cultures look upon uh, the hegemony of imperialism and colonialism. For example, the Aboriginal peoples of Canada or Australia. Um, and there's a particular quote that I like um, from Henderson, who uh, just, he's just commenting on the Navajo. But it seems to sum it up where he says, our vision of justice is to be based on Aboriginal knowledge about the nature of humans, their society, and our linguistic mode of understanding the ecology. We can't simply borrow Eurocentric versions of human nature or psychology or society, since they're not based on our wisdom, knowledge, or language. They have never known who we are. Um, and I think it's that fundamental problem of trying to come to terms with a completely different perception of notions of responsibility, liability. But more, more than that, what is felt to be the accepted balance between conflict and peace and how to sustain it. Fundamental questions like that. Right, well, that was a very rushed sort of summary of some of the, some of the problems, but in the remaining few minutes, what I'd like to do is just uh, say a few words about uh, what myself and Mark Finley have been up to in the last a few years in what we've been writing, because we produced a book in 2005 uh, called Transforming International Criminal Justice, and um, I apologise in advance for the very grand sweeping assertions of the titles of these books, but what we were actually trying to do was come to terms with, the, uh, with what we thought was a originally quite a simple idea of trying to integrate a bit more restorative justice into the what we perceive to be the um, international criminal trial framework that I've been talking about. And we got very bogged down in problems of theory and method, the issues that I said I wasn't going to talk about at the beginning, but the problem of comparative analysis. And what we concluded was essentially that there would have to be a fairly drastic reconceptualization of the international criminal trial process in order to achieve that. And we've just published another book which, again, has a fairly grand title to it, I suppose, Beyond Punishment, Achieving International Criminal Justice, which is where we've tried to give some sort of flesh to these, these ideas. Um, so, my own contribution to this is very much from the, the sentencing punishment perspective. And I've been looking at ways in which one might uh, introduce intermediate stages and outcomes into the uh, international trial. And looking at the way this might affect um, the relationship between trial professionals and other things such as the probative value of evidence. Um, because by moving from one type of obviously adversarial retributive framework into another um, causes some fairly difficult problems. 
Um, not to say the least the way in which trial professionals might need to behave, and also the, the changed function of the judiciary in this sort of situation. Um, also broadening the notion of rights to make rights more connected with um, communities. So how do you establish a dialogue of justice, if you like, with victim communities? How do you make rights more socially responsive, if you like, within the international criminal justice framework? So there is a great deal of judicial discretion, but can this judicial discretion be mobilised within the existing framework? Well, the short answer to that is that no, um, not, to, not to achieve what we think would be a complete, completely necessary. Um, what we would suggest, or what we argue in this book, um, in the first chapter, is that some sort of reconceptualization of the morality is necessary. And this may not seem so completely far-fetched as it sounds. I mean, as a practical proposition, it may take a long time to change. But the problem is, not just in international criminal justice, but in criminal justice in general, as we all know, the problems of integrating restorative into a retributive framework always comes up against the same issues of inconsistency, proportionality, trying to compensate for the factors which are going to be eroded by introducing a restorative framework into the trial. Um, and it seems to me from, from the work that, that I've done and others on the way in which the aims of international trials are so disconnected from what seems to be necessary in order to achieve legitimate justice, if you like, for, for these communities, that there is the scope for these arguments to be put. And that the institutions, particularly the ICC, are not averse to listening to arguments as long as they can be argued through to some sort of practical solutions. Changing the moral foundation, obviously, of the trial is something which, which is a difficult thing. On what basis would you do that? Um, well, perhaps you have to think about the criminal process itself, the criminal trial process, in a completely different way. And perhaps this is where it comes to connect with the idea of transitional justice a bit more readily. Because it's, if it's to do with legitimacy and trying to think about how we're going to reconnect, we are talking about morality and where morality comes together, the sharing of values and the fact that the trial process itself needs to reflect that, particularly looking at ordinary societies, more pluralistic, as, as, we, as we all know, the, the fact that there does need to be more of a connection made between the ideologies that inform punishment and populations as they become more and more diverse. This is similar in the international criminal justice sphere, but for different reasons. Obviously, you're trying to rebuild a society rather than you've already got one, but societies 
in different ways and shapes are fragmenting. Punishment, and we always talk about the rule of law, but the rule of law has to sit on something which is morally acceptable to the majority of the population. So I suppose here we get into political theory, which I'm not qualified to talk about, and, and other things. But there are lots of connecting arguments. It's all to do with governance, where the criminal justice process sits in relation to governance. So there's lots, lots to play for, and there's lots to argue about. So our, our view, whether you agree with it or not, would be to say, well, this process, the trial process itself, why don't we think of it as an essential part of the human condition, if you like. Um, the human condition, humanity has a propensity towards conflict. It also has to have a propensity towards re reconciling that conflict, towards resolving it, otherwise it destroys itself. You have a process within societies which for the reasons that, that that society needs a process that, that has to function to serve the interests of that community. So you have to grow a process which keeps that balance between conflict and peace. So I would argue then that perhaps that process has an intrinsic value in itself. And perhaps we can, if we can just move away slightly from that sort of retributive, sort of pure retributive idea that you know, the process is just a means to an end, i.e. the end is to serve retributive justice, can we not try and argue slightly away from that? Um, if it is possible to do that, and it is an argument which is, I think, worth making, then the potential for trials to contribute to transitional justice or for transitional justice itself to move forward are... are are considerable because it will influence obviously the whole the whole value system. Okay, is it okay if I stop at that point? Sure. Yeah. Because I think uh, I've reached the references. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a good spot. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Ralph.